you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. If you guys don't mind, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra. Classic Christmas sermon this morning. Ezra chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9 and 10. Uh, we, uh, we had intended on finishing this series of faithfulness in all seasons a few weeks back, um, and uh, since COVID hit, we had to push it on all the way up until now, and it's still, it's still the Word of God, and, and we will see how much of this does even bridge to Christmas, but we wanted to make sure and complete this. Um, starting in the month of January, we're going to take the month and um, preach through spiritual disciplines and kind of kick off the year that way. You know, how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to be a good steward, how to evangelize, those sorts of things. And we're going to call the church to, uh, you know, reading the Bible with us uh, in a year and things like that. And then starting February, our plan is to jump into the Gospel of John. So we're going to jump into the New Testament um, shortly after uh, the New Year. So Ezra, chapters 9 and 10 this morning. What is it, if you, if you sat back and maybe asked yourself this question, kind of, you know, how would you answer yourself or how would you journal it down? What is it that you know about God? What is it you know about God? And what it is you know about God, what does it then do to your soul? Does it, is it just kind of like, eh, whatever, kind of boring, the mundane, or does it kind of revive your soul? Does it do something to you? What sort of hunger or desires begin to mound up or mount up because of what you know about God and what you know about Him? Does your knowledge of God translate then into a holy living for God? Or does it just become a bunch of information and knowledge that you have stored away inside your brain? Because really, it's not enough to just have Scripture memorized, to have catechisms nailed down. It's not enough to just have a bunch of theology read and to be well-versed in what people are saying. Because at the end of the day, if your knowledge of God doesn't move you to tremble or revere your God, then really, what is it doing for you Then, other than maybe to just kind of puff you up? Brett McCracken, author, he writes in his book, Uncomfortable, and in his chapter about holiness, he, he opens up this way. He says, The bar was full of people, full of smoke, full of that loud, sustained, decibel, hum of alcohol-fueled chatter that makes shout-talking into someone's ear necessary for a conversation. The music was bumping, full of profanity. At one point, a few people were dancing on a table. Bursts of laughter and the occasional shattering of glass punctuated the noise. All manner of tobacco was being smoked, cigarettes, cigars, cigarillos, pipes, and almost everyone in the bar had just finished a day of sessions at a major Christian conference. I was part of that scene, one of the evangelical revelers whose behavior was such that no observer could have distinguished us as believers in any holy God in any set-apart sense. Of course, in the moment, it was fun, joyful even, 
and we relished blending in with the bar crowd, but in retrospect, I wish I had contributed a better witness, living at least part of the call to not be conformed to the world. I wish I had been more mindful of how, even in a bar, I was called to be different, to let my light shine before others. I came home from that conference and pinned thoughts about the problematic desire for faith to fit in with the cool kids of the world. Now, before you cast judgment, Brett is not a legalist. He's okay with smoking a pipe. He's okay with drinking a beer. But the point he's getting at is getting in with the world so much that you can't even be distinguished from the world or even be considered holy. When we get into the story of Ezra here, last week we saw that Ezra was pumped. Ezra chapter 7 and 8, he was excited that he was called out by God to go back into Jerusalem to lead exiles back into the city to a temple that has been rebuilt to help restore worship. He was excited about it. He gets to go back and he essentially gets to make disciples, gets to teach everybody God's word. And so he is expecting after he makes this 900 mile journey back to the city to see his brothers and sisters in the faith already beating him to the punch of worshiping their God. But what we will find out today quickly is that Ezra's real mountaintop Christian experience and expectations plummet to the depths of a canyon. They go from mountaintop to the bottom of a canyon, and he begins to see that these exiles, these Jews who were cast out of Jerusalem and have come back, have now just fallen in love with the world. And really, they have lost a true knowledge of who their God is. They knew him religiously. They knew him on a holy level. Or excuse me, they, but they did not know him on a holy level. They were not near to God in that way. So the people knew God, but ultimately, they had forgotten God. And so Ezra will sit here, and he will be completely appalled at the exiles, the fact that they know this God, this God who brought them back out of slavery into a city to rebuild the temple and are still far from Him and are still practicing evil and are still far away from His holiness. But as we dive into this, what we'll see amidst all of Ezra being appalled in this situation, Ezra will show them, and he will ultimately show us, that to know God is really to tremble before Him. To know God is to tremble before Him. Let me read parts of chapter 9 and chapter 10, and then we'll get into this. Ezra chapter 9 Verses 1-6. through six. And after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel 
because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying. And so in these first five verses, Ezra sees what's going on, assesses what's going on, and he falls down in prayer. And so the rest of chapter 9 is Ezra just lifting up prayer to the Lord. And then we get into chapter 10, the first five verses. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women and children, gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shekaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God and put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took an oath. And down to verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, and on the twentieth day of the month, And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. To know God is to tremble before Him. And so we see in these first five verses in chapter 9, really an appalling faithlessness. An appalling faithlessness. Ezra comes in and he sees that these exiles have not separated themselves from the world that is around them. They have essentially assimilated themselves to the sinful ways and sinful lifestyle of the Persian Empire. We saw this not too long ago as we were working through the book of Esther. How Esther and Mordecai themselves had assimilated to Persian lifestyle, Persian comfort, and had taken it on for themselves. But here we see... It's not only in these exiles, but even in the leadership. And so this sort of abominable thing that has happened among the Persians, things like orgies, things like child sacrifice. I mean, they weren't aborting their children. They were literally having their children and then offering their children up, whom they've raised to as a sacrifice to their pagan gods. And so here, these Jewish exiles had been participating in, in such acts, these abominable things. And this is why he says in verse 2 that this holy race has mixed itself with the pagan faithlessness that surrounds them. Now, if this is the same time that the prophet Malachi had existed, and there's debate on when the prophet Malachi existed, maybe a little before, maybe a little after, what we see in the book of Malachi helps kind of clue in what's going on. Malachi tells us in chapter 2 that there were priests or that the the sons of Levi had divorced themselves from their Jewish wives and had married 
pagan wives. Basically, divorcing themselves from the wives of their youth, is what Malachi says, and intentionally taking on pagan wives, foreign women. So this idea of a holy race is not some form of racism. That's not what's going on here. Race here, this holy race, is not linked to, if you will, ancestry, as we might think. The holy race here is linked to the practices that were infused into the life of the Jewish people, even the priests. The pagan practices, the pagan rituals, the sacrifices were now infused in a part of the DNA of God's holy people. Now, I'm not just saying this in a vacuum. I mean, if we recall just a few chapters before in Ezra chapter 6, after the temple was rebuilt, the, the people came around into the city and rejoiced, and they held the Passover. And it says in chapter 6, verse 21, that the Jews, and along with everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, worshipped the Lord, the God of Israel. So it wasn't just the Jews who worshipped at the Passover, it was also the non-Jews, but the non-Jews who had given up the practices of paganism and surrendered themselves to God. They too became a part of the holy race, if you're tracking with me here. So this isn't something abnormal for God. Throughout the entire Bible, throughout the entire Old Testament, God calls foreign nations to repentance. We see this in the book of Exodus. God calls Pharaoh to repent and the Egyptians to repent. He would not have sent the plagues upon them had they repented. But you see that all over. And you even see this sort of marriage. Abraham had married outside of the holy race, Moses had married outside the holy race. And when we, if you guys recall, when we studied in the book of Joshua some time ago, that when Israel came across the Jordan River into the promised land, they were coming up against Jericho, but then they were coming up against the list that we saw here, the Canaanites, the Amorites, right, the Jebusites, all of these people. And if you just take that story in a vacuum, you go, well, that's not very nice that they come in and they just go ahead and take over all the people of the land and they destroy them. What we have to understand is those enemies of God became the enemies of God back in the book of Genesis. And for generations, they were building up their case against God, being frustrated with God. And the people of Jericho knew that Israel was delivered from Egypt and held their ground for decades until they came across the Jordan River, and who was the only one to respond in faith and repentance? A Gentile prostitute by the name of Rahab. And her life was spared. Her and her family was spared. And if we get into the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Christ, you want to know who's there? Rahab. One of Jesus' great-grandmothers. So this isn't something out of the ordinary for God. God calls people to his family. So I want to make it very clear of what is being said and what is not being said in terms of a holy race. And so Ezra stands here completely appalled, meaning he's astonished. He's reduced to shuddering. He cannot believe what it is he's beholding before him. 
And he begins to, in that moment, he tears his garments, he tears his cloak, he pulls out his hair from his beard and his head. I can't even imagine what that is like. But you see this as well in the book of Nehemiah. Really, this is the most expressive way uh, Ezra could show his remorse, his anguish. And he's literally sitting there, quiet, stunned, appalled, for hours on end, all the way until the evening. And without a word, just sitting there silently, we begin to see that God's word convicts the people around him. Ezra doesn't even say anything. And then the people began to be convicted. And they were trembling at God's word. And they were trembling because of their faithlessness. And they began to gather around Ezra. And they sat around him until the evening time. Until eventually he got up. And he didn't even address the people. He just went to the Lord in prayer. How are you set apart from the world? What distinguishes you from the world? Your lost friends, wherever they may may be, whoever they are, do they identify you as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus? Or maybe another way of saying this, how have you found yourself kind of divorcing yourself from the things of God, from the things of Christ, and marrying yourself to the things of this world. I would say in the last 20 years, just something I've observed, in the last 20 years, the pendulum has really swung drastically against legalism. And it becomes more and more difficult to call people to repentance because you don't want to be deemed a legalist and you don't want to be deemed judgmental. Right? Legalism was running rampant for quite some time. And then kind of at the turn of uh, the millennia, what we see is people beginning to find their freedoms in Christ. Oh, I can drink a beer. Oh, I can smoke a pipe and it's okay. But the pendulum tends to continue swinging further and further. What we have to understand is that and, and when the pendulum swings further, we begin to kind of shy away from the word holy because we think it's then grouped with legalist. But what we have to understand is that holiness is freeing and legalism is binding. Okay, There's a complete difference. And I actually sympathize with the author Brett, who I read a minute ago, because I'm part of a, a church network of planters that kind of has the bad rap of swinging, swinging the pendulum too far. Like we're always, always toting the line of how much we can drink before we're considered actually drunk. Or just constantly pushing the envelope. Or just constantly being known as people who can say cuss words or whatever it is. And, but here's the problem. We do it in the name of being missional. Hey, look, I can go to the bar. I can hang out with the sinners. I can do this, that, and the other. But here's the reality. Like, if you go to the bar and you talk to the bartender or the people who attend the bars, none of them have any idea that those guys are even Christians. So all we're doing is just trying to prove to ourselves that we, can, we have these now freedoms, in, these religious freedoms to go drink and whatever, but we're actually not even doing anything. And look, I understand how legalism destroys people. I get it. I've seen it. It's happened in, even in our own church. 
But I can also see how a fear of looking legalistic pulls you equally far from God and really shackles you in the opposite direction to the point you become ashamed to really separate yourself from the world. Ezra may have been appalled by sin, but that's because he was allured by the holiness of God. An allurement to sin leads to an appallment of God. Right? So which are you? Are you appalled by God or are you appalled by sin? Are you allured to God and His holiness or are you allured to the things of this world and the flesh? And have you been so infatuated with God and who He is that it causes your heart to sink to see the brokenness around you? To see brothers and sisters in the faith maybe just trapped in sin? Does it cause you to break for them? And notice, Ezra didn't convict the people. He didn't give up, get up and give this you know, on the street corner speech and saying you're all going to hell kind of thing. He didn't even do that. He didn't even give a word. All he did was really just lament for what was going on. And it was God's Spirit and God's Word that was drawing the people around him and they began to tremble in fear. And then he went to the Lord in prayer. Does God's Word convict you? Does it convict you? Or do you find yourself just going, eh, whatever. There's a distinction between being a legalist and being holy. A legalist condemns the sinner and casts them out. And if the church body doesn't ultimately meet their expectations, then they abandon the body. But a holy person who understands God's Word, His covenant promise to the body, humbly calls his family to repentance by drawing near with enduring commitment and really even blushing embarrassment. If we jump into verses 6-15, through we begin to see Ezra, and though we didn't read it, I encourage you to read Ezra's confession of prayer. In these first verses in 6, we begin to see Ezra confess and he is ashamed. He's ashamed. He's blushing at what's going on. He's he's ashamed to address God. And his shame is wrapped up in the fact that he assumed the people of God knew God and lived for Him rightly. But he found out very quickly that they were living a completely different lifestyle. So he was ashamed, right? And you would think the next sentence after this, after this shame, is that Ezra just kind of threw the deuces and said, I'm out. I'm done with you. You guys are disgusting. I don't want to be near you. But what does he do? In his prayer, he identifies with the sinners. He begins to, it kind of goes from this first person, singular, I, I, to us. Ezra begins to identify as one of the people who's transgressed against the Lord. He's taking ownership in this covenantal relationship between God and the people. Ezra understands that this covenant that God has made is not just with individuals, but with the family. And so Ezra values what he knows about God and what he knows about his covenant people. And so he humbles himself to be remained identified with the people of God, even as they sin. So Ezra really here 
is the mature, strong brother in the faith who will ultimately lead these exiles to repentance. And so he led the community to see their sin and he, he led them to a prayer of confession. And sometimes it takes you, church, you and your leadership to maybe lead people to repentance. I mean, consider your, your roles in life here. Ezra hasn't even really addressed the people. He's just going here in prayer. But consider your roles and your position in life. As a boss, maybe a husband, wife, whatever your position or role is in life, how is it that you might be used by God to lead others to live a holy life? And God hasn't called us to abandon one another, right? But to lean into it and to endure through it. And if we're going to call people to repentance, we have to do so with the mindset and the posture that we are going to be with them for the long game and to be in the trenches. You may have heard us say this before in the past that if you have the courage to call somebody to repentance, then you must also have the courage and the willingness to walk with them through repentance. You don't just get to call someone to repent and then leave. No, you get to step into it and endure just like Ezra does here. And even really just like our Savior does. Even while we were still yet sinning, Christ died for us. Consider Him then, who chose to identify with sinners. Right? Jesus chose to identify with sinners so that He could pay for their sins. So He could atone for their sins. And He could give them freedom. He could give them life. And He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Ezra stands here before his brothers and sisters in the faith and he sees the giant mess up that they are, but he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters and yet he lays himself down for them. So he confesses. And in this confession in chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, he is able to see God's goodness, even in the mess of everything, that God has spared a remnant, Ezra prays. That word remnant is important because all throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is always sparing a remnant with the purpose of bringing about a saving or a salvation. We see this in the story specifically in Genesis with Joseph and his brothers. They say, please forgive us for what we've done. And Joseph is like, look, I forgive you. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God spared a remnant. When you look at the brokenness around you, it's important to see how God is using that brokenness for His good. And we need to be able to assess what God is doing around us, not just get honed in on the one sinful act or the things that might be appalling to us, but to then really see what is it that God is doing and what is it that He has not done. We don't want to condemn, but we also don't want to abuse God's grace. We need to use this time as we look at one another and observe the church family, we need to be able to see how God is both merciful and gracious. Mercy meaning that God chose not to punish us, but to punish His Son Jesus. And grace being that He has given to us His salvation 
in Christ, though we did not deserve it. And so as we are walking through the trenches of life, we can begin to see how God is using even the jacked up things that happen in life as a way to refine us, to remind us that God isn't sending us to hell, but has punished His Son, and that God is continuing to lavish upon us grace and grace. And so we move forward then, because we are able to see the goodness of God, it helps us then move forward and not sink down into a state of reclusiveness or feeling like we're shackled down and can't go anywhere. No, we can move forward, or as Pastor Sage says sometimes, fumble forward in our walk. And Christmas is one way that we can see the goodness of God. He's the offspring of the remnant that is even mentioned here in Ezra. If God doesn't spare His people, we don't get to the point of Matthew chapter 1 or the Christmas story that Jesus even comes. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the remnant of Israel. And so this story here in Ezra goes far beyond what we're just seeing here in the pages of Ezra, but it links to, it goes to our perfect salvation and hope that is in Christ Jesus. And in this prayer, not only we're we able to see God's goodness, but we're also to see that we have clearly sinned. In verses 10 through 12, there's a clear recalling here of God's word and understanding the sin that was committed. God gave clear commands of what his people were to do. You see this in the first five books of the Bible with the laws and the commandments, right? Here's what my people look like, and here's what they don't look like. And so here in Ezra's prayer, there's a clear identification of how the people of God have sinned. And it is necessary for us to know exactly how we have sinned. How are we to fight sin if we don't know what it is that we've done wrong? So how are you seeing Jesus then this Christmas? Is He in focus or out of focus? Right? Are you able to see how you fall short of the glory of God? And I'm not speaking in a condemning way, but are you able to see how you are a sinner and He is not? Is that fuzzy or is that in focus? And if it's in focus, you should be able to see clearly what Christ has done by coming down as a baby. And if not, then really Christmas doesn't mean a whole lot. If you don't understand the goodness of God and your sin in light of the goodness of God, then you're going to have a hard time understanding why Jesus even came down. And ultimately, seeing Jesus lying in a manger should cause you to beg for mercy. Beg for mercy. And that's what we see in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 9, that Ezra begs for God's mercy. He knows that they deserve a greater punishment. God didn't just unleash the hailstones or the fire. He didn't open up the earth and swallow the exiles down and close it up after them. They are still living and breathing. God is granting them opportunity to repent of their sin. And Ezra says that God is just. That God is just allowing them to escape His wrath. But how can that be? If God is so holy, their sins have to be paid for in some way. Doesn't 
God seem inconsistent if He doesn't seem to do something about their sin in these chapters? And this is where we get to thank God for Jesus. We get to thank Him for His mercy. Ezra called God just, knowing that He would extend mercy to the exiles. And ultimately, that that mercy or that, that payment for their sin would have to go somewhere or to someone. And ultimately, we know as New Testament believers that was ultimately satisfied in the work and the person of Christ. The reason that Jesus came down is so that by Him taking on the sins of the world, He would then show the world that the Father is just and the justifier, right? And that we would be justified by faith in Him. So all the sin that we see committed in Ezra chapter 9 and Ezra chapter 10 would not be just swept under the rug and God's going, you know what, let's just forget about it this time. No, it would be perfectly dealt with in the cross of Christ. And this is the hope that we have. And so this is what we should be celebrating in Christmas. We don't need to be sitting around in shame and guilt. But really what we need to be doing is sitting in awe and joy at what God has done to remove from us the guilt of sin and the shame of sin and even its condemnation. We have freedom in Christ and we didn't do anything to deserve it. And when we rightly submit ourselves to the Word of God and His holiness before one another, rightly leading one another to live holy lives, we can be expectant that God will work to set His people free from sin and not fearful that we will be deemed really the legalist. As so we begin to see in chapter 10, weeping leadership. You see this right away. And so chapter 10 is the events that followed Ezra's prayer. Ezra prays deeply and passionately in chapter 9. And now the action that follows. And the leaders then take courage and they confess their sin. You know the saying, as the shepherd goes, so goes the sheep. Ezra leads the way in confession and prayer. And so the leaders see this. He doesn't tell them they have to do this. He doesn't demand it of them. But they see this and they too feel convicted and the need to renew their covenant with God in verses 3 and 4. So they realize, yeah, we need to put away our foreign wives and children. This is a hard pill for us to swallow because we're like, okay, what? So he's got, they got to divorce their foreign wives and they got to get rid of their kids? This is a very difficult thing. I'm not disagreeing with you. It's extremely difficult. But something we do need to know is that this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. Meaning, this is not a passage that's saying, if you marry an unbeliever, you have to divorce them and get away from them. We know what the New Testament says about that. We know in the New Testament that Paul calls wives to submit or to even lay down their lives quietly to their unbelieving husband and spouse. And if you are married to an unbeliever, to pray for them, to pray for repentance, right? But this is a descriptive of something very unique that is going on. And so the New Testament even gives descriptors of when it's appropriate or inappropriate even to divorce, and that is for another time. 
And as I mentioned earlier, there are times in the Old Testament when men of the Bible, righteous men of the Bible, married foreigners. Again, Abraham and Moses are two examples. You even see that with Solomon, I think, and King David as well. They're, they're, it's not just pure in that sense. But what we're dealing with here is Jewish men, these exiles, intentionally, blatantly disobeying God and His Word and accepting pagan worship and idolatry. That's what's going on here. And so, this was something that was to be done for those who tremble at God's Word. If you tremble at God's Word, basically we need a clean house and we need to repent. This was something that was voluntary. This wasn't something that Ezra said you had to do. Nobody was forced, but the people were responsive to God's Word. And so in this case, repentance required that they actually put away their wives. And Ezra was then asked to lead the way. <laughs> I mean, what a, what a thing to be asked to do, right? Ezra, you didn't, you're not guilty of any of this. You're not responsible for this. But Ezra, we need you to leave the way. And so Ezra rises up and he leads the way. As uncomfortable as it is. But perhaps you've been called to repentance by a brother or sister in the church family. And maybe you've resisted them because it's been, you've, you've deemed it said something that is judgmental. But maybe you're realizing now that it's not a judge, judgmental thing, but it's a holiness thing. Right? Maybe you might need to consider how someone else may be more appalled by your sin in your life than maybe you are. And maybe that frustrates you. And here's what we have to understand as well. That the reason it can tend to frustrate us is because we know the consequences that go along with it. We know the domino effect of repentance. Right? In this case, these men willingly, knowingly sinned against their God and married these foreign Wives and children. And so therefore, the domino effect of their sin is that it is affecting other people, not just themselves. It's affecting their wives. It's affecting their children. They are having to deal with the consequences of somebody else's sin. And so when somebody calls you to repentance, you know how it affects you and you know the domino effect of it. And to repent can be very difficult because you know it's going to affect maybe your wife, your children, your employer, your relationships all around you. And that makes you very uneasy. And when that happens, sometimes we can bristle up and we can go, well, you're just being a legalist. You're just being judgmental. Instead of dealing with the reality that we are living, perhaps, in sin. And so when we consider God's holiness and the call to holiness, we find ourselves agreeing with God and agreeing with His holiness. And when we find ourselves agreeing with God's holiness... That's when we find ourselves really trembling before Him. And we see that in verses 7-44, through 44, that the people gathered together before the house of God, before the temple, before Ezra, and they were trembling. They were shuddering. And they were trembling, it says, because of God's Word, first. And then secondly, because of the heavy rain. It's a very unique picture there. 
that the rain is coming down, it's cold, it's dreary. I mean, if it's not the best picture, right, of the situation here. They're just completely soaked in this shame and conviction. And so then Ezra finally speaks to them in chapter 10, explaining to them the breach of their faith. So that for the first time in a chapter and a half, that Ezra finally opens his mouth to the people. And the people openly confess and admit that they have sinned. Ezra didn't have to force them, didn't have to twist their arm, didn't manipulate them. He just took the Word of God to them, and they were convicted. And even as they are convicted, they begin to lay out, oh, here's what uh, the process of repentance is going to look like. The process is going to take quite some time here. We have just a little under 200 families that have to work through the divorce process, if you will, and it's going to take more than just a simple hour or two. It's going to take several days. There's going to be a lot of conversations that are going to be had with the leaders of the tribes, a lot of judgment, a lot of discerning to figure out exactly what is going on and what is needed, because this isn't a one-size-fits-all kind of situation here. They have to observe every family, and they have to observe every family to and measure them to God's Word. And so they know that they must do this in order for the wrath of God to turn away. They can't just continue on living in sin and expect that God will be okay with it. They have to repent. They have to move forward in repentance in, in order for the wrath of God to subside. And you see, there's only a couple people who actually buck the system. We see in verse 15, Meshulam and Shabbatai, they were the ones who are going, I don't know if I really want to get on board with divorcing anyone or think this is a good idea. And that's probably because if Meshulam is the same guy in verse 29 at the end of the chapter, then he's, he's one of the guys who's guilty of marrying a foreign wife and having to go through the process himself. And so, of course, he's probably going to buck the system a little bit. But what this shows, at a minimum, is that of all the people who are being called to repentance, you're only having one, a couple people kind of push back, and yet we don't even know if they uh, followed through or not. They may have actually followed through. And so the people in verses 19 through 44 pledge to follow through with the process, knowing that many who many not only have wives, but also have children. We see that at the very end of chapter 10. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. So again, it's a harsh reality. Harsh consequences for sin. It is now impacting foreign wives and now children. This is no light matter. And, and there's a lot of question of, okay, so what did they have to do? And, and some, some scholars are saying that they're, they're working through how these women would be taken care of, maybe being sent back to their fathers and sent back to their families and being taken care of in that way. So it's not just that these men are just abandoning them, saying good luck on your own, but they're actually having to set these wives and children up to be taken care of so that they can return back to the wives of their youth, if you will. Does the Word of God cause you to tremble? Does it cause you to slow down? Does the call to live a holy life make you angry and frustrated with the church? 
Or does it cause you to revere your God and want to lay yourself down before Him? Let's admit it. Repentance is not easy. It's never easy. It's not easy to be called out on sin because it costs us something. It always costs us something to repent. And so you may be seeing the devastating effects of sin upon those around you and and so you fear repentance because it'll cost you even more and you can't deal with the pain of people knowing your garbage. But I want to encourage you that the loss you face in the process of repentance pales in comparison to the loss you will face if you continue in sin. And look, it may be you may, might be facing eternal judgment and hell. Maybe you're not actually saved. The loss you face in repentance will ultimately bring you life and freedom. I promise you. The loss you face or experience in repentance will bring you life and freedom. So I want to call you to courage to come out and face that repentance. Don't hide in the shadows anymore. And we have to understand that a process for repentance is also not a one-size-fits-all among the church. You can't just say, well, yeah, just go fix it. Just, just stop doing it, right? Is that the SNL skit, the counseling session? Just stop it. <laughs> I wish it was that easy, but it's not, right? None of us are made in a vacuum. None of, us are, none of our stories are in a vacuum. There's, there's things that happen over the weeks and the months and the years in our life and trauma, if you will, good things and bad things that make up who we are and how we understand things, interpret things, and kind of compound the fears that we have. And so our sin isn't just a very simple thing, but it is rooted very deep into a very wicked kind of heart and story. And so we have to be diligent to walk one another in repentance, understanding that the story goes way back. So this is why it's necessary we get in the trenches when we call each other to repentance. This is why Paul calls us to endurance. Look, church, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, as far as the members of our church, nobody's like, hey, I'm just, I'm just heading out of here because I'm tired of it. I'm bored. You know, I want a new experience. I mean, like, we're here. So we're in the trenches. And look, sometimes repentance can be like real quick, real simple, but sometimes it takes a long time and we have to go the distance. It could take days, weeks, it could even take years, right? And so as we are being called to walk with one another through repentance, let's be like Ezra. Let's be patient. Let's be kind. Let's be gracious and yet confident in the Word of God. We don't have to be ashamed to call people to repentance or fearful that they're going to call us legalists or whatever, but we are enduring in that way. Ezra was not ashamed to be identified with them, and we should not be ashamed to be identified with one another. So it can be daunting or heavy to think about living a holy life. Honestly, if we, if we truly know God and see Him for who He is, we will see that His holiness is always going to cause us to bristle up because we still occupy a broken and sinful frame. And God's holiness is pure, it's perfect, it's undefiled. So it's always going to cause some friction. 
And this is where the gospel of Jesus becomes a great hope for us. Not only for the returned exiles of the day, but also for us. Listen to what Malachi says as I wrap this up. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as, as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like, a, like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. This is the hope of Christmas, that the holiness of Jesus would come and refine and purify sinners like us in order to make us holy and bring us before a holy Father. Brett says in his book again, could it be that the most authentic thing any of us can do is faithfully pursue holiness and obediently follow after Christ? Jesus is the realest human we'll ever see. He's authentic. He understands our brokenness. But He's as real as can be. To overcome our authenticity confusion, evangelicals must see themselves differently. Rather than focusing on our brokenness, we should look to Christ and those who model Christ-likeness. We should move in that direction by grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We should also perhaps stop speaking of ourselves in such we-are-scum terms, which is really dominant in our reform circles. In Christ, we can be more than scum. And that's a message the world sorely needs. That's what holiness is. So today is the day we step out into faithfulness and be a people that are unashamedly holy because of the work of Jesus. Let us not only be the loudest in our praise to Him, but let us be the loudest in our modeled lives of holiness towards Him. Let us not settle for our brokenness and tolerate our sinfulness. Rather, let us lean into the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within us and truly begin to be appalled by our sin and truly enamored with the holiness of God. This is the hope we all need. This is the hope the lost world needs to see.